everyone, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. This is Everything That You Need to Know series, a series of different primaries where I break down everything that you need to know about the stock market, the economy, and the crypto market. Today, we are going to be talking about the week ahead. I'm going to talk about why the Fed meeting is important, what we can expect from the Fed this week, and potentially what their decision framework looks like, all the different things that they have to take into consideration. There's literally so much happening this week. There's the PPI, so the producer price index tomorrow, and that's going to measure the cost from the perspective of producers rather than the consumers. So we get the CPI that tells us how consumers are feeling about inflation. The PPI is going to tell us how producers, so the people who actually make the items, are feeling about inflation. And then we have retail sales. So that's going to measure the health of economy, how spendy people are feeling. That's going to give a really good indicator for how economic growth could look because consumer spending is 70% of economic growth, 70% of GDP. And then monetary policy decisions. So that's going to measure how policymakers. So we have the Bank of England, we have the ECB, the European Central Bank, and then we have the Bank of Japan, the BOJ, and the Fed all having monetary policy decisions this week. That's going to give us a really big indication on how the central banks see the economy right now. Philly Fed on Thursday, and so that's going to measure the change in business activity, and then unemployment on Thursday as well, and that's going to give us a very good insight into how hot the labor market actually is, which of course is very important in general, probably the most important thing this week, besides you having a good week, is the FOMC meeting. So the Fed meeting is very, very important. Why is monetary policy the most important thing out of this week? What's the bank going to do? What is the Fed going to do? We already kind of know what the other banks are going to do, but the Fed has sort of diverged a little bit from the other banks because the United States has had mega inflation. So things have been super, super hot over here. The Fed has a little bit more responsibility to have more contractionary monetary policy. The market is pricing in an element of rate hikes. The market's like, yeah, Fed, we expect you to raise rates by X amount. The Fed seems to be willing to increase rates and have a faster taper. And I'll talk about what all that means. And also to just as an aside, I do have a lot of a lot of videos as most people who watch this channel regularly know. I have a lot of videos on the Fed. So I'll link all of those in the description box. If something I said, it doesn't make sense. Go and check those out or leave a comment below. The Fed's super important because it's like, what's going to happen? What are they going to do to the economy? The Fed has to take in this dual mandate, right, of price stability and maximum employment. So they have to make sure that inflation is where they want it to be as well as where the jobs market is. So they have to make sure that both of those things are good. So it's kind of like Goldilocks and her porridge. Can't be too hot, can't be too cold. You got to have both those things be just right. And if you remember from that story, it was hard for her. I don't even think she got her porridge because everyone was like, it's impossible. It's an impossible request. That's kind of what the Fed is running into. It's very hard to keep your, your porridge lukewarm in this sort of environment. The Fed also has to wait out other things, including but not limited to U.S. debt and the recovery in the labor force. U.S. debt has obviously just exploded through the roof. There was a ton of borrowing during COVID. Right now, all that debt is pretty manageable. The interest rate on that debt is pretty low because interest rates are very low. The U.S. government can essentially afford to service that debt, but one of the worries is if the Fed does raise rates, all of a sudden that debt servicing becomes very expensive, not only for the U.S. government, but other companies, other corporations that have issued debt as well. That lies a problem, right? Because it's hard to afford the servicing costs of of debt and the Fed could make all of these very debt-laden companies go through a little bit of pain, which would not be good because then you would have companies fail. And if companies fail, that's not so good for economic growth, right? Then also, when you think about U.S. debt in particular, there hasn't been a lot of good turnout at the auctions for the debt. So essentially, the U.S. government finances their livelihood through issuing bonds and selling them 
on the market. Companies or other countries will come in and buy that debt and then that allows the US government to basically fund itself. The Fed has done a really good job at backstopping the treasury market, allowing the US government to function essentially by buying up all the treasuries. However, some of the treasuries are now negative yielding, meaning that they don't pay you anything to hold them. In fact, you lose money by holding these bonds. And so it's just not appealing for the average corporation, the average asset manager, the average bank to hold these treasuries, even though they do because they're essentially a cash-like instrument, but it's not very appealing to hold them if they pull out of the market. Who is going to fill that role? I don't know. Then also recovering the labor force. This is the stickiest part of the equation because consumer demand will essentially go back down at some point. Like people are going to be like, all right, I can only buy 17 Teslas over the course of a year. I don't need any more. But if we do not have people working, right? If we don't have people going in and doing these jobs that are so important and literally are the fundamental underlying being of the economy, then it's like inflation isn't going to go anywhere. So you have both sides of the equation. Right? The services side and the good side is both driven by labor wage. If labor wage is not there to sort of support that side of the inflation equation, and essentially just never recovers prolonged inflation. Unemployment rate can be as low as it wants to be. The participation rate is really what matters, and that's right around 60%. Almost half of the economy is not working, which isn't good. Getting more into this, so the Fed has to deal with this balancing act thing. They have to figure out how to curb price pressures without messing with employment or growth. That's really impossible. The porridge example, right? So you want to have your porridge be lukewarm. How do we get the economy back to lukewarm? Right now, the economy is too hot, right? need to cool it down, stick it in the fridge, or they can put ice in it. And so everybody's like, Fed, you should probably stick the porridge in the fridge rather than pouring ice on the porridge. If you pour ice on the porridge, it's just, it's not going to taste good. Too much water. So that's what the Fed has to deal with right now. It's like, okay, so we put it in the fridge. How long do we leave it in the fridge? Should we put a, a cover over it? Put it back in the microwave after we take it out of the fridge? If you think about putting the porridge in the fridge, that's essentially what the Fed is doing with tapering, right? The Fed has, they can either taper, they can tighten. If they taper, that's going to be rolling back on the asset purchases that they do every month. Right now, they rolled back by 15 billion. Estimates are they're gonna roll back by 30 billion and end those asset purchases by the end of March of next year. So they're cooling down the porridge. What would be putting ice in the porridge is raising rates. Raising rates, they're going to talk about that at the meeting this upcoming Wednesday, Thursday. That'll be really interesting to see exactly how lukewarm, they're, how cold they're trying to make this porridge be. It's a very, very delicate balancing act, especially from the debt perspective, where a lot of these instruments are very, very sensitive. They, they got sensitive teeth relative to the cooling down of the economy. If rates increase, a lot of these over-levered companies are going to feel a lot of pain. The question becomes, how much can the Fed do if they can do anything at all? And this gets into the conversation around the yield curve. So the yield curve is how much you get paid for holding short versus long-term debt. The longer-term amount in the future that you're holding, like debt securities, 10-year, you should get paid a little bit less than you would for a 30-year just because more uncertainty rises into the future. And you you should be compensated for holding things in uncertain environments. The yield curve is normally upward sloping because everyone's like, all right, two years, we kind of know what's going to happen. It goes up to 30 years. Okay, we'll pay a little bit more because you're holding on in an uncertain sort of framework. There's flat yield curves. That essentially means that the market is not pricing in really any element of growth. They're saying, all right, I think two years is going to be relatively the same as 10 years. 10 years is going to be relatively the same as 30 years. We just don't see things getting any better. Then an inverted yield curve, an inverted yield curve is going to be like, we see things right now as being way better than they could ever be in the future. And that's really bad because that's when you essentially get a recessionary environment. If you get an inverted yield curve, that is 
usually an indicator of a recession happening. So right now the yield curve is relatively flat. So if you look at the 10 year treasury minus the two year treasury, you can see that that's been declining over time, meaning that that spread has compressed, meaning that the compensation that you get for holding the 10 year versus the two year has compressed. Economic expectations have compressed. Everything is compressing, compress, compress, compress. We don't see that same element of economic growth in the future. There's really not a lot of room for the Fed to move because if they do move, they risk inverting the curve. And if they invert the curve, everybody's going to be running around. Oh my gosh, the yield curve's inverted recession. Either inflation is going to have to move or long-term rates are going to have to move. And markets themselves, Fed is pricing in a little bit more movement or thinking probably about a little bit more movement than the market is stomaching, that the market is kind of ready for based on things that are implied by the overnight index swaps and euro dollar futures. So we get this, right? So the Fed, they're trying to make the porridge lukewarm as best as they can, but it's hard. The Fed mostly cares about jobs and prices. So price stability and maximum employment. The economy's moving, things are grooving. Inflation came in really hot last week at 6.8% year over year CPI. The Fed sees that, but they mostly look at PCE, which I'll talk about. But things are kind of getting weird, right? There's a little bit of divergence in what we're seeing versus maybe what the market is pricing in versus what the Fed could be saying. So when we look at the CPI, which came out last week, there is a lot of movement. There was a lot of stuff going on in it. Everything was going up. Energy has been really the key driver of the CPI over the past several months. Nobody bought barrels from the SPR, which was Biden's way of trying to appease energy markets. OPEC Plus literally has no spare capacity, no room to increase production. So we will probably see continued price pressures in the energy market. Europe is starting to subsidize power supply and Sweden has turned on their oil fire generating power capacity. Then of course this gets into we cannot have green energy policy without green energy investment. And this is going to put upward pressure on energy, but that's just one component of the CPI. Energy is kind of a little bit easier to manage because you don't have to get gas every day, but you do have to buy food every day and you do have to have a place to live. So this gets into the shelter conversation. So shelter only, only <laughs> increased 3.8% over the past, you know, year over year. Houses are excluded because they're more of a capital appreciation tool versus an actual expense. Tells you how important home ownership is here in the United States. If we think about all that, if we think about the OER, the OER is only 12% of the PCE and 30-ish percent of the CPI. But an interesting thing about this owner equivalent rent is that it does represent 25% of the CPI and 12% of the PCE. So to construct the OER and rent a primary residence's indexes, the BLS samples a single set of rental units, then adjusts the sample weights for those units according to their shares in either the owner occupied or rental market. It's really a weighting metric. It's not really a price metric. It, 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 it is a little bit fuzzy because primarily it's just meant to be saying what these homeowners are thinking that their home is worth if they were able to rent it out. So if you look at the actual shelter metrics, the shelter index increased half a percent in November uh, in the indexes for rent and owner's equivalent. Rent both rose 0.4%. What the heck is going on there? It feels like those things were a little bit higher. A lot of people are saying, right? Bill Ackman, of course, comes out tweeting. Bill Ackman says reported inflation is understated. Uh, owner's equivalent rent relies on owner surveys to estimate inflation and housing costs. This is an extremely imprecise metric. Of course it is. The single family rental provides more accurate data. OER in today's reported CPI was 3.5% year over year. The largest owners of nationwide single family rentals are reporting 17% year over year rent increases. OER is 30% of the core CPI calculation and 24% of reported CPI. Bill Ackman came on and he said all this stuff. They used the survey to 
estimate weights, not really to calculate the prices. It's really a weighting metric. It's not really a price metric, which is where I think there's a little bit of confusion here. House price growth historically leads rent inflation, OER inflation. You can see that Zillow home prices have increased. We will expect rents to increase in the future. They just tend to be more of a lagging indicator here based on what we're seeing with house prices. The Fed really only pays attention to this personal consumption expenditure index. The Fed only really cares about headline inflation at the end of the day. They really delineate in the PCE between goods and services. So the Fed, of course, has that dual mandate, right, of price stability and the labor situation. So they are able to look at services costs to get a pretty good indicator of how the labor situation is playing out. The Fed has to worry about the jobs market. This was from the BLS, like five key takeaways from this most recent report that came out last week on the jobs market. 61.8% is the labor force participation rate, which hasn't changed much since June of 2020. The participation rate has gone up a little bit, but this is very, very important because this is what the Fed is going to look at for really what a healthy economy, a healthy labor market looks like. Because if you don't have people going back to work, the unemployment rate could be zero. But if there's nobody in your sample, like it doesn't matter. That's really the problem that the Fed is running into is that the labor force participation rate is low. Half of the economy is not really working and that's not going to bode well for economic productivity and also a healthy economy. Then they also talk about what could reduce the labor force participation rate, including early retirement, childcare obligations, career priorities, and desire for better working conditions. The jobs market is very weird. There's a tough conversation around labor wage, right? So are people going to be paid more? What does that really look like? Because this has been very hard on the average consumer. You're not getting paid as much and everything is getting more expensive. What the Fed does is very important because it impacts the regular person at the end of the day and that is the backbone of the economy and real incomes are falling so this is a graph of disposable personal income versus real disposable personal income and you can see that it has increased over time because inflation has increased over time so once again real plus inflation equals nominal if that inflation number gets bigger uh, there's going to be more and more divergence between real and nominal income but then you might say oh kyla Kyla, the stock market is not the economy. Why do you keep on talking about them at the same time? They are, but they aren't. It's an unfortunate fact that the stock market does get conflated to be the economy at the end of the day, and the Fed has to be responsive to the market at the end of the day, because that's just how it is. If the market loses its mind, a lot of investors are going to lose their mind, and then that's going to put more pressure on the economy. Once again, it's how do you keep that porridge lukewarm? You can't really just go blowtorch the porridge. You can't really just go toss that porridge into the snow. So it just it's really quite the delicate balancing act. It's kind of an aside, but the stock market's like literally five companies. Companies. I thought this was good from Goldman. If I allocate $1 into the SPY ETF, this is what happens. 6.3 cents into Microsoft, 6 cents into Apple, 4.4 cents into Google, 4 cents into Amazon, 2 cents to Tesla, 2 cents to Metaverse, Meta, whatever Facebook is called. 25 cents goes into these six stocks. So 25% of the S&P is these six stocks. They also said Apple is larger than Germany. So you just have the stock market really being driven by these five core companies. The broad market isn't doing as hot as you would think it would be based on all this noise. It's kind of like this whole inflation wage debate. Um, maybe the average person is doing just fine, but is the labor market really good? Is the stock market really good? It just really gets into these more nuanced conversations around what it actually means for the stock market to be a stock market, for what the labor market actually means, like what actually is the composition of all of this stuff. Then this gets into fiscal and monetary policy. So the Fed, like we talked about, really 
has no room to the upside. The Fed can't really wiggle around too much. If they wiggle around too much, they're probably going to knock like a coffee cup off the table. They they have a little bit of room, but not a lot. It gets into the job of the government to step in. So this is a good graph from Jason Furman. It's the real 10-year benchmark rate of all these different countries. And as you can see, it's declined over time, meaning that there's just not as much room as there used to be for the Fed to engage in monetary policy. So think about it this way. If the Fed had a bunch of room, so like, let's say that rates were at 5%, the Fed could essentially go in and raise them a little bit more. They could do whatever they want. But if a recession happens, they have room to the downside. They can cut. They can cut all the way down to zero. We're already effectively, it's called effective lower bound. We're already essentially there. That is really going to make monetary policy a lot harder to implement because we're already at sort of the extreme edges of the distribution of what monetary policy can accomplish. When you have policy, you have monetary policy and then you have fiscal policy. And so if monetary policy isn't able to do the job, you have to have fiscal policy step in. And so that's going to be the government. That's going to be tax cuts. That's going to be stimulus money. That's where it gets a little bit funky is the government has to pick up the slack because the Fed can't do as much. And this always gets very political. The Fed is meant to be apolitical. It's meant to be outside the sphere of influence. Imagine if the Fed had to deal with the Democrats and the Republicans yelling at them all the time. It'd be a mess. You never get anything done. Just last week, they were able to figure out the debt ceiling situation. Imagine if they had to be in charge of monetary policy too. No thanks. And so that really makes it a tough situation as well. What is the Fed going to do on Wednesday considering all of this? They can taper. They can buy less bonds. They can stop providing providing so much support to the market. They already cut this by $15 billion a month. And they're likely going to cut it to $30 billion a month of cuts. That will likely wrap up in March. However, the most important part of this, of the double T's, is the tightening part. What are they going to do with rates? And so the way that they move rates is by controlling the Fed funds rate. It's once again, nudge, nudge policy. And they will likely raise rates in March once the taper ends. And just to hit again on like this nudge, nudge policy idea. So the Fed has their double T's. So they have tapering and they have tightening. Tapering, they like literally go up and buy stuff. But with tightening, that is nudge nudge because they essentially like nudge around the Fed funds rate and that's going to influence borrowing costs all across the economy. It's going to influence how banks act. The question then becomes, is nudge nudge going to be enough? Will raising rates be enough to tamper inflation? Is it going to matter or will it be too much? So back to that porridge idea again. Is it lukewarm porridge? Do you blow torch the porridge? Do you dump it into a vat of ice? It gets really difficult, right, to decide exactly how much cooling or heating of the porridge has to happen for it to be just right. For Jay, this was a supply chain vulnerability, just similar to how we have supply chains in our physical life. Log4j is a supply chain vulnerability on the internet. This is an article from Wired. This is from somebody who was interviewed. It's pretty dang bad. So many people are vulnerable and this is so easy to exploit. There are some mitigating factors, but this being the real world, there will be many companies that are not on current releases that are scrambling to fix this. Essentially what happened here is that there was a vulnerability in this logging framework. People People are now able to hack in and take over and have access to every single data point that exists on these companies' servers. And that's very bad because they can go in and change numbers, they can go in and liquidate accounts, they can go in and just take care, they can take everything. So that's very bad because a lot of companies are reliant on this framework, reliant on using it. Now they're all vulnerable. It's on Mars too. It's on Mars because why wouldn't it be on Mars? It's uh, it's in everything, right? And so that's not good. I think this picture probably does the best job at encompassing it. All modern digital infrastructure is like uh, stacked on top of everything. And there's like one little thing, a project some random person in Nebraska has been thanklessly maintaining since 2003, propping up the whole thing on one side. And companies that are impacted include iCloud, Twitter, Steam, Cloudflare, Amazon, 
Tesla, Baidu, Tencent, this is a huge freaking deal. This is kind of getting into the discussion around open source versus paid and all this stuff. And so I have thoughts on that that I can talk about another time. Cybersecurity is so underinvested in. Um, another Kyla Hill, green energy policy, green energy investment, cybersecurity investment. If we're going to go live in the freaking metaverse, like we should have cyber. And so in other news, um, I am. So I, I think most people do know this, but I am from Kentucky. My college town was hit by the tornadoes and a lot of friends lost homes, many lost loved ones. So I'm going to include some resources below if you're willing and able to donate, to volunteer if you're in the area. Those resources will be linked in the description box. Life is so precious. Take care of each other. Take care of yourself. Hold your loved ones a little bit closer if you can. Final thoughts. I, I've wanted to talk about this for a while and I know I've been like really kind of rambly in this one and I know this is like not normal for a financial YouTuber, whatever I am to talk about, but uh, a lot of this stuff can be overwhelming. I think there's a lot of overwhelm that comes with being in the markets because the markets are so noisy. Don't let yourself lose the signal for the noise. Don't feel like you have to take care of everything ever all the time. The more that we learn, the more that we're educated, the more that we can have conversations, reasonable conversations around what good policy looks like, what sort of impact we can have on the world. Here's a fun picture I saw of this just extremely sturdy cat and his Doberman and a small looks like a Charles Spaniard dog I don't know what it's called I thought this picture was great and so you, if you're on the podcast you can't see it but if you're on YouTube you can anyway thanks so much for hanging out thanks so much for spending time with me I'll be back tomorrow questions comments feedback concerns all oh as always drop them in the comment box below follow me on instagram twitter youtube substack uh tiktok i'm literally on every single platform just hanging out come hang out and yeah thanks so much for spending time with me and i'll talk to you soon